Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Tim Boyle. Tim is the Director of Innovation and Commercialization at ANSTO, Australia's nuclear science and technology organization, and the founder and lead executive of the NANDA Innovation Center, as well as an adjunct professor with Design Factory Melbourne and global expert faculty with Singularity University. Tim has a strong track record in developing the interface between research and business with 20 years experience in industry engagement, technology transfer, and innovation and economic development roles. Tim is a self-confessed innovation policy and metrics geek and has a detailed understanding of the impact agenda and how to optimize the contribution of research to deliver benefits to society and the economy. Prior to joining Ernesto, Tim held knowledge exchange and commercialization roles at the University of New South Wales, including responsibility for the Global Easy Access IP Consortia, which delivered a radical model to accelerate the transfer of IP into practical use. Tim also has held various knowledge exchange research and development roles with Thomson Reuters, Johnson & Johnson, Avexia, AMRAD, and the University College London. Tim has a PhD in chemistry from the University of Wollongong, is a registered technology transfer professional, also known as RTTP, and a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. He has won many innovation awards and accolades, including the George Collins Awards for Innovation, which he won twice, and the Queen's Award for Enterprise, Innovation, Technology. He also holds non-executive roles, including the Deputy Chair of ShireBiz and Economic Development Alliance, Chair-Elect of the Alliance of Technology Transfer Professionals, also known as ATTP, and advisory roles with the National Imaging Facility and Landway Education. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I've become a huge fan of your podcast over the past few months. Uh, and also, your introduction makes me sound um, much more important than I think I really am. Oh, well, it's quite the impressive background, uh, really amazing uh, uh, background. So thank you again for taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. You're actually our first guest from outside the U.S., so... Um, Appreciate you taking the time, uh, especially given the time zone differences. Um, But generally, I'd like to start these podcasts off by asking our guests a little bit about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got into tech transfer and especially how you ended up at ANSTO? Yeah, so I guess I took the um, slightly unique part in that when I finished my um, undergraduate degree, I did a fourth-year research project. And that was an industry-based project. And I managed to, to continue that industry um, industry research project into a PhD. Uh, we, we have a number of inventions. Um, some of them have ended preclinical development. And one of them was a trial candidate. But the, the uh, industry partner didn't manage to find the fund. Sorry, again. The industry partner didn't find the funding to continue to a full clinical trial. So I started off my research career very much in the industry space. Uh, and I was lucky enough then to become a Johnson & Johnson Fellow through Johnson Johnson Research Australia. And I did that for about two years um, before taking up a BBSRC Research Fellowship uh, at University College London. And this sort of going from industry, so from industry sort of background into a pure academic role um, and I realised very quickly that I didn't want to be a pure um, blue sky science research academic. Um, through my network, I uh, knew some people that worked at Thompson Scientific at the time, 
and they asked me to come along and do some product development type work with them as a sort of chemical um, a chemical industry market expert. And I just, through them, I developed a number of products, including Thompson Innovation, which you might be familiar with being a patent attorney, as well as Thompson Pharma, uh, some of the work with science content, and then uh, a big product, which is a custom solution for a pharmaceutical company uh, called Pipeline Data Integrator, which integrates a lot of competitive intelligence data from a number of different um, sources, including Thompson data. During this time, Thompson's acquired, Thompson acquired Reuters, um, Thompson Reuters, I think now subsequently that part of the business I work for has spun off into Clarabate Analytics. What was interesting is during this time, up until that time, I never really heard of technology transfer. You know, I worked in commercial projects in university environments, uh, commercial research, and technology transfer wasn't really a thing at the University of Warmer at that time. There was no, no TTO or tech transfer office at all. And it was all quite foreign. But when I was working at Thompson, um, I was doing some in-licensing of technology that we were adding into our, our product roadmap. And I looked at the tech transfer offices in the UK and I thought, you know, it's the best job in the world. You're, you're shorter projects, you're dealing with cutting-edge technology, there's still a research focus, and you're wrapping up all these elements of business that I've been dealing with from the industry side. Uh, it seemed like a, an amazing career path. So... At that time, my wife and I decided we wanted to move back to Australia. We've been in the UK for nearly five years. We moved back to Sydney, and I was lucky enough to pick up a very entry-level role um, with UNSW, which has innovations and brought the technology transfer office of, you know, yeah. uh, and, I, and I started my tech transfer career at UNSW. Um, having done a lot of tech, tech transfer type activity in my previous role, you know, industry partnerships, licensing, in licensing, but to wrap it all up in a, a pure role that's transactional was um, really different. I went straight to the bottom of the food chain again, so, <laughs> um, climbing a career ladder quite steeply and successfully. But again, uh, I've, over, over the last you know, 12 or so years, uh, I've you know, had a very varied role in, in tech transfer. I've done licensing, I ran the Indiaxide Peak Consortium, um, which is the global consortium whilst at UNSW. Um, I had uh, you know, a huge number of transactions in a short period of time. I think one year I did nearly nearly 40 technologies. Wow. Uh, and then in the last, last six years ago, I had the opportunity to come and work for ANSO, um, looking at industry engagement partnerships. And from there, um, a little bit of licensing tech transfer. But really the last few years, we've been looking at place-based innovation and commercialization um, as, as an ecosystem developing tool and product development. Uh, including the Nancy Innovation Centre, which has really been the core focus of the, the last two years, established innovation centre, pioneer innovation precinct program. For our listeners who might not be familiar, Tim, can you tell us a little bit about ANSTO and the Nandine Innovation Centre? Yeah, so ANSTO is a national lab. Um, we work in the nuclear science technology space. Um, unlike the US lab, um, we, we don't focus on nuclear power at all. We use nuclear science technology across three industry verticals, and that's human health, the environment, and then material science and nuclear fuel cycle. So we're, in some ways, we're very similar to Los Alamos National Labs, Oak Ridge National Labs, or Argonne in the US, um, in that we have big nuclear infrastructure, we do mission-based research. Um, but at the same time, we're, we're different. We don't do energy-focused research. We, we're focused on applications um, that will of nuclear science and technology that improve society. So, um, you know, a big component of what we do is nuclear medicine. You know, our facility, nuclear medicine facility, ANM, can supply about a third of the global demand for nuclear medicine. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it, it's big business. That's very large, yeah. Yeah, we... We also operate most of Australia's landmark and big science research infrastructure. So, yeah. Opal Reactor is the hardest working multi purpose nuclear reactor in the world. It's used for research and businesses that we run, including our nuclear medicine business. We also have a silicon radiation business, and we do some um, consulting in the, in the resources and mining sector. We have the Australian Centre for Neutron Scattering, which is a large neutron scattering facility. We have the Centre for Science. It's one of only four 
accelerating facilities that can use the full gamut of isotope acceleration. We also have National Deuteration Facility, um, the Australian Medical Imaging Cyclotron, and a bunch of other significant research infrastructure platforms, all the Australian Cyclotron with our Melbourne campus as well. So we're quite large in that we operate big bits of kit, which is accessed by universities, industry, and a whole host of other users to come and work at ANSO um, to perform their experiments on our, on our equipment and our infrastructure. The Nansen Innovation Centre is just a hub for uh, innovation and commercialisation activity. It's a sort of, set, it's sort of moving away from the term innovation centre, more being a people and ideas collider, because it's not really just about innovation centre. We have you know, a startup community that's growing quite rapidly. We're up to 18 startups now in our community, and we've only been going for just over a year. And we have six or seven industry clusters that that are centred around um, around Andes, and we have some really key programs which are just coming online, including a challenge-based innovation program in partnership with Design Factory in Melbourne, where I'm an adjunct that's part of Swinburne University in Melbourne, as well as um, extended network into the Design Factory Global Network, which is a network of 30 innovation centers in research organizations and universities globally. And we also have a number of last week's knowledge pieces of infrastructure coming along for place-based innovation and allowing communities to access ANSO's expertise, our researchers, as well as our infrastructure by co-locating at ANSO to work with us. We also set a graduate institute, so the researchers Early, early career researchers and PhD students from universities who come and work at INSO, collaborate with us on their mission-based research and get experience through our entrepreneurial learning programs which we run in Nanton. They'll give them three other options that extend beyond academia. That's a real differentiator what we do compared to what other innovation teams do. Um, Nanton is indigenous work. Um, it means look ahead in a durable language. The Dharawal language is the, the Dharawal people, are the traditional custodians of the land where the um, city campus resides on the edge of city. And what's interesting is that historically, the, the land which Nandis is on was a meeting ground between the Highland people and the coastal people, the Dharawal people. And there's artifacts and other indigenous artworks carved into rocks surrounding our site indicating this occurred, so it was a, place, a meeting place in the past, and now it's a meeting place and collaboration point for knowledge exchange and commercialisation. So it's nice to know that we're sort of carrying on in the, the modern age of 60,000 years of, of cultural history of meeting and exchanging ideas in the, in the current context. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I you definitely have a lot going on there. Um, what does your office look like in terms of structure? I, given all those different activities, I would think it would be a fairly sizable office. Is that the case or not really? No, not at all. As a national lab, um, most of, we have a small researcher pool. We have, we have our instrument scientists who run our infrastructure, and we only have around 90 scientists who are actually working on answer-based research. So we don't have, we have that large pool of researchers to develop and disclose IP. So our approach is slightly different. Um, I'm part of the small business development office that sits at a corporate level. And, you know, alongside my, co- my colleagues include an expert in the nuclear medicine business and an expert in nuclear waste consulting. And I tend to look at mostly after the technology transfer type activities, including license, licensing, innovation, Strategic projects like our innovation precinct from the business perspective, um, I operate Andrew, the innovation center, and I tend to get drawn into anything that's sort of IP and patent related as well. And when it comes to ventures and startups, we tend to play a role depending on the nature of the technology and its stage of development. So, for example, I tend to get involved in really early stage projects, that's where my skills do better, and then some of my colleagues might pick it up if it's Later stage, so market entry into the nuclear medicine market. Um, you know, my colleague Roseanne has a lot more expertise in that. Um, there's a separate team that focuses on stakeholder engagement and one to one industry partners. Uh, however, when multiple parties are involved or an engagement aligns with the strategic initiative, 
and I tend to, to get involved because one of my skills I think I'm really still at is finding all the different parts of the puzzle and then um, tying that string between them and putting them all together. We don't have our own in-house or in-office legal team, or business analyst, marketing or finance type function. All those functions have their own corporate or shared, central shared team across the organisation and we access them on a matrix type structure. So we have a small specialist team who can draw on the skills we need to function from across that site, you know, organisation as we need to. Uh, almost the guys, we have our fantastic team assistant, Dorothy, and she's amazing and we couldn't live without her. She keeps the, the wheels turning. Wow, really sounds like you guys uh, run the lean and mean, as they, we like to say here uh, in the U.S. That's, that's impressive, uh, given everything that you have going on. Um, if we talk about then inventions and patents and licensing, turning to that topic, um, I would imagine then, given your size at, um, and your statement, you're really not focusing a whole lot on patents. You probably you know, get a fair number of disclosures, I would think, every year. Is that the case? Yeah, so on average, being a small national lab, we get between three and five disclosures per year. Um, but I guess the, the disclosure side is the input. We're also working on a number of other initiatives that aren't necessarily focused on research as well. Um, and on those the number of disclosures, we tend to file on most of them. Um, you know, we can do more hands-on with our researchers and help work with them to... Um, to mature the, the IP, more hands-on than I say it could have been for university. And we also can uh, move faster because we are a small team. And we don't have some of the issues that you have in university context. So we don't have student IP really an issue. Most right. of those issues are resolved by agreements we have in partnership universities up front. And then we don't also have sort of conflict of interest situations um, with our research staff, you know, having we are benches and other interests on the side because we are a national lab. Um, so we don't have, tend to have encumbrances in our IP either. You know, the, the, the most difficult thing normally is when we have joint IP that's been created in partnership with a, a university and usually resolve that through an institutional agreement quite readily and easily. Yeah, those can get kind of complicated. And and like you said, since you don't have student IP, that actually simplifies things because in a lot of universities where there's a lot of student IP, particularly like in, in software and things like that and programs, and that can get particularly complicated. Um, but it sounds like you guys don't have that issue. So you have a limited number of disclosures. You file on those, and that makes perfect sense given the number you were talking about. But given all this activity, it sounds like that maybe you have more volume maybe in the licensing space and, and perhaps maybe in, in royalty generation and, and fee income? Yeah, so in terms of, you know, we have lots of active licenses. I couldn't give the number off the top of my head. Um, but there, the number of license, you know, new licenses varies year on year. Um, not all of them have tax attached. So I'm currently actually um, in the middle of negotiation at the moment for a license, it's pure know-how around instrument design. So, you know, it's going to get captured in some of our normal metrics. Um, nearly all of our IP portfolio that's licensed is fully recharged. Um, we tend not to be carrying too much that, um, that we haven't got licensed at the moment. In terms of, uh, you know, average royalty fees and income, we, it's, it's a little bit difficult for the nature of our office to distill, distill it down. So I can't break it down on a patent royalty basis, but you know, self-generated revenue across the organisation is around $120 million per year. That's Australian dollars, not US dollars. Uh, and this includes you know, options, like license options, assignment type revenue, uh, income grants um, that are for commercial basis, um, sales of products from our implementing business, um, energy silicon sales, mineral consulting, and then also um, you know, small components, our land licenses, uh, our tenants we have in our patient precinct. So what about then things like corporate partners um, and the role that they've played at NSTO? Yeah, so I think the way one of the, the models that I like to embrace is to actively have put you know, industry partnerships as a driver. It's the, it's the number one way to increase productivity within the organisation 
add to the research income and have a positive benefit on society and the economy. Um, I don't have the exact number of you know corporate partnerships we have at the moment, but we've got over a hundred. Wow. Um, there's so much activity going on. You know, it's, it's a big part of our dealing. It sounds like it. So given that number of corporate partners, uh, you must do a large number of deals and is given those corporate partners, do that, does that lead to a differently structured deals and maybe a straight out license under a patent? Do you work that differently? Yeah, it's a, it's a completely different approach. Uh, and it's important um, we view this as our preferred approach. You know, we're effectively commercializing the research outcomes before the IP is created. And this is fantastic from a sustainability point of view because the revenue acts in favour of research productivity, which drives further research, intellectual property development, and all those great outcomes from the research. And from my perspective, and I remember I'm sitting in the National Lab at the University, you know, we shouldn't be measuring invention disclosures and relative revenue, um, but industry and corporate sponsored research that drives the productivity of the research mission. Um, you know, if you, if you take the, the pure model that we exist to um, create and disseminate knowledge. You know, it, it ticks both boxes. You're, you're creating the knowledge in, against a real challenge that's coming from a partnership, and then you're disseminating that knowledge back to that partner um, in, a, in, a, in the same transaction almost. And so it, it aligns with that knowledge creation, dissemination, purpose, and mission very, very nicely. Um, our researchers are not eligible to be grant funding either. So collaborative research is really important for the sustainability mission of ESO and the way that we, we drive mission-based research. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So it sounds like that you not only have maybe corporate partners, but you have maybe research partners as well. Would that be the case? It is. Um, you know, if your research partnerships aren't returning outcomes that can be commercialized or other advantages to their business, they cannot to continue those partnerships, you end up with a one-off engagement. I think it's part of the innovation ecosystem development model to create new ventures to scale and grow and then return value back through scholarships. I reckon new buildings, sponsored chair-type positions, research collaboration, um, philanthropy, and other other great tangible benefits that don't necessarily fall into traditional um, tech transfer reporting metrics. Um, it is a different approach to the way that you view, almost like that concierge or research concierge approach. But it's a much, um, it works for us much better than sort of trying to um, push technology to market um, by, by developing the technology in collaboration with our actual partners. Now, I think the biggest um, failings of the traditional tech trends model I found was that you basically soliciting inventions from a university population and their their solutions that don't necessarily have a problem yet. And when you've got a solution like a hammer and you're looking for that problem, suddenly everything's like a nail and you're just banging against every door. Uh, Where if you're developing the the hammer against a very specific nail, or it might not be a nail, it might be a screw to a similar sharp long object, you develop the elegant screwdriver which drives it in nicely, uh, it's a much more productive and nicer fit. That's why I would take them bottom. That's a really great point. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned something about philanthropy, and that's kind of my next question. What role do philanthropic organizations, things like the Gates organization, do they have a, a role um, in, in your organization? Do you utilize them? Do you get funding from them? Um, how does that work? Yeah, so they have an important role, although with ANSA, we haven't directly benefited that much. Um, we do access philanthropic funding to support some of the clinical trials of the Theranostic uh, radio pharmaceuticals that we're, we develop in partnership with our industry partners. Um, when I was at UNSW, it was vitally important um, to get obtaining philanthropic funding and you know, at least a new building innovation and renewable energy. And I think that the giving pledge, like Bill Melinda Gates and some of the other high-profile network entrepreneurs have signed up to, is going to be a big boost in this area. And I think we're just sort of starting to see some of that flow into the tech trends or into the research space. You know, the more and more um, 
the, the larger the quantum of philanthropic capital that, that comes online, it's going to start to trickle down into research into new investment vehicles. And I think we'll start to see more um, profit with purpose type coming from this philanthropy and new uses of investment vehicles like evergreen funds um, that are for social enterprise where, where that money is reinvested back into the fund so it can continue to go back into um, sustaining, have a sustained impact rather than just be you know, charitable donations towards a research project. I, start, I think we're starting to see much more a sophisticated approach to philanthropy and then that will in turn um, you know, bear more fruit in the research and then hopefully trickle into the tech transfer space and the impact space. Now, you've done a lot of licensing deals. It sounds like a, a lot goes on in your office. You have a lot of corporate partners, like you mentioned. Now, given your your tenure in tech transfer, looking back at some of the deals that you've done, what would you say you would have done differently knowing what you know now um, back then? Yes, I think early in my career, um, you know, when I first moved across into the pure tech transfer role, I think I was really guilty of overvaluing technology and maybe being a little bit overzealous to get to the transaction and deal and maybe overlook some of the, um, the researchers I was representing and their, their interests in, in trying to drive for the win for the, the tech transfer office. Yeah, but that didn't, didn't take me long to realise it. And that relationships really make the system work. And my role in the tech transfer space was really part of that knowledge dissemination machinery uh, aligned with publication and teaching. You know, I think tech transfer is the way that we communicate with industry. So if you think of university mission as to create disseminate knowledge, you know, we create knowledge through research. And there's three modes of dissemination. There's teaching, which is how we disseminate knowledge to students and the next generation. There is publication, and it's how researchers communicate their scientific and research to you. And then tech transfer, knowledge exchange, um, commercialization, whatever the flavor is in your part of the world, that's how we, how we disseminate knowledge to industry. And once I realized that my role was not necessarily about winning personally and getting transactions to the TPO, but to support that exchange of information and transfer from researchers into the hands of industry and the idea, you know, transactional components to that. Um, I, I really, once that mindset slipped, uh, I became a lot more productive and hence a lot more successful as well. Um, more people are impressed with getting the technology out of the door in the hands of people that actually to build the products and services um, and doing large, and we're doing large of transaction where IP goes into a corporate black box. I think it's part of that mission to drive sustainability for a better society and benefiting the economy also. So I guess the take-home point from these learnings of my early career mistake is really that it's about relationships. If you can build trust and active integrity, uh, pick the right partners, um, you're not setting yourself up those repeat transactions and that enduring value creation, whether it be licensing, yep. tech transfer, and commercial research partnership. Unless, if, if, unless everyone's winning over and over and over again, you don't really get to the critical mass. Uh, I remember the best partners the ones you've had. Um, it's much easier to maintain a partner than going out and finding new ones. I think that's really great advice for our listeners. Um, I've heard something similar from um, Terry Bray at Georgia State Research Foundation, and they have a lot of corporate partners and they do a lot of transactions and a lot of partnerships. And he was saying about just exactly what you were talking about, um, making it kind of a everyone wins over and over again. Really, that keeps their corporate partners coming back and engaged. And it translates where everybody is benefiting. The university researchers are getting more funding the corporations and the corporate port partners are, are getting uh, research and technology. And, and so um, it works really well. And it sounds like you've done a really good job of, of realizing that there. Yeah, I think it's part of an ecosystem approach. So I think we're seeing the rise of student entrepreneurship and accelerated programs in the university sector, especially to support um, student experience, but in the entrepreneurship space. And I think if you if the tech transfer officers get involved in that activity and maybe make some of their technologies available to these students, um, there's a value creation opportunity there where students, as they become successful, um, join the ecosystem and build that economy around 
around the um, the tech transfer office, which when they're successful, they'll donate money to the foundations and the advanced offices for philanthropy um, to fund further research, or they'll direct funding straight back into the research lab. Uh, as they grow, then they might take out residency within science parks or technology parks. So, you know, they're co-located with universities and research orgs. Um, and, and then you get the spillover and long-term collaboration. Everything starts with, with a, a discussion. And yeah. that's how you grow that. How you grow those relationships and that ecosystem to to get the you know one plus one equals three you know the synergy. I don't like that sort of language, that management speak language, but it's, it's really true when it comes to the opportunity that surrounds the tech transfer office getting involved in things other than just direct licensing. Yep, absolutely, and you've definitely shown that. And I would sus- suspect that you must have some pretty big success stories as well. Even though you guys are small, I'm getting the impression uh, you might be small, but you're mighty. Yeah, that's true. We are a small office, but I like to say small office, big impact. Um, you know, over the last few years, we've had three startups that have finally proved they're doing great things. Clarity Pharmaceuticals is a local city-based pharma company now. They've grown very, very rapidly. and Last couple of weeks, they've announced their um, latest clinical trials. They're using this unique copper-based steranostic. So, those you know, steranostics are where you attach a, a radioisotope to a targeting vector, normally uh, an antibody that divides specifically to a certain type of cancer, and then the radioisotope delivers that energy straight to the to the cancer cells, which causes DNA disruption and. Um, Mutations and ultimately the, the cancer cells die. Very, very targeted therapy. And they're using, they've got unique technology which helps bind the radioisotope of copper. And they've got two, two radioisotopes. They use one imaging and one for therapeutic. And they've gone through the roof. Another great company is Biogill. This is a now multinational water remediation company, um, headquartered out of Singapore now. So they're, they're left and they're, they're headquartered overseas now. Another company called Ceramosphere. And they make these um, specialty coated um, additives that so they use a ceramic coating to encapsulate certain things and the coating has two unique properties. And they, they sort of took a while, they've been there kill out now in sort of adding coating for any corrosive coating for any corrosive corrosion inhibitors for paint um, oh, okay. and surface coatings. Um, our office also led the business case development and fundraising initiative around our anti-nuclear medicine project which is now the world's premier nuclear medicine manufacturing facility. As I mentioned earlier, capable of supplying a third of the global demand for nuclear medicine each week. Um, personally, I think conceiving and driving the launch and growth of Nandan has been a hugely successful endeavour. I'm still on the upwards trajectory. Um, you know, two years ago, uh, we were basically starting out, went from nothing, um, and, you know, very rapidly grown a community of nearly 20 startups and internal ventures from within ANSO. You know, we have a fantastic mentoring and entrepreneurial learning program. And through a $12.5 million grant from the South Wales government, we're now refurbishing a new 1,500 square meter building um, that will be, you know, purpose built space for, for NANSAs to grow into. Uh, and be the hub of our innovation ecosystem. We're also developing a series of lab suites for our startup, including a, including a dedicated hot lab for radioactive work for next generation nuclear medicine production and development. Um, in this expansion, we've also established, as I mentioned, the Challenge Based Innovation Program partnership design factory global network. And that's going to allow us to use design innovation techniques to create you know, high value products and applications from platform type technology which is effectively solving that challenge um, that you have in commercializing platform technology, which is a big one that no one's really come up with a solution for is how to find that killer app. And we'll have this um, dedicated platform um, for commercialization, for technology transfer and commercialization of those technologies by building products and services based upon that technology um, using student credit awards and design innovation, which is really, really exciting. And I think uh, hopefully that's a model that we can use to unlock some of this um, trap IP that you see that dies on the vine um, in tech transfer offices. We can help free that up, um, especially with applies to things like sustainable development goals, things that have massive societal impact. I think it's going to be a game changer. 
Wow, that's an impressive impact that your office has had. That's <laughs> that's incredible what you guys have been able to achieve. But I would suspect you've probably got some challenges too, given your size. Um, do you want to talk about, you know, maybe some of the, the challenges you face as being a small office? Yeah, I think our funding is always, because um, we are a small office, is always quite tight. And yeah. being a, a national lab, you know, we are, we are in fact, um, custodians and represent the, you know, effectively taxpayer money. So we want to make sure that we um, have the best value for money um, that we can offer and work as lean and smartly as possible. Um, I think recruitment, hiring, extension um, is a challenge. Now, we have three senior professionals in our office, so there's limited path to career progression, and it drives a heavy workload onto our small team. And, um, but that's an opportunity as well. In terms of you know, the, the, the staff makeup, you know, our staff numbers has steadily declined back to our core team over the past five or so years. Uh, it's also challenging having similar and aligned functions, such as our stakeholders industry engagement team, sitting in different parts of the organisation. Um, that creates some challenges in that you have sort of siloed approach yeah. sometimes, where, you know, it's something that hopefully will... Um, be able to improve on over time. I think flat structures and matrix reporting is much more productive and transparent than having sort of functions that are unique to any particular part of any organisation. Um, I think also um, some of the challenges are really around you know, how to encourage innovation entrepreneurship, especially in national lab context. We don't have students. Or we're trying to address that problem through our graduate institute. So it's, um, in terms of the, the broader innovation ecosystem community that surrounds NAND, it's not so much a challenge, but how we bring the, some of our ANSO colleagues that maybe haven't been exposed to innovation entrepreneurship as a way of doing things in the past, how yeah. we bring them into the tent and upskill them and evangelize them uh, and change the way that the organization works as a whole is, is, a, is a big challenge that we will overcome. Um, and part of the way we're doing that is now new purpose-based space. We're going to have our corporate training and development team based there as well. So as people are coming in to, to undertake their mandatory training and learning opportunities, they'll also be clashing with the entrepreneurs, the graduate students who are working on their entrepreneurial learning programs and other activities. And hopefully some of that, those conversations and those internal corridor conversations and water cooler conversations that will happen in the sort of shared space there rub off and we'll start to see you know an increased engagement over time. But you know, it is a collision sport and we are a people collider and that's the way we, we force people to collide and have those conversations that lead to those next opportunities that create value for for instance. Well let's switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the Alliance of Technology Transfer Professionals, also known as ATTP, which I know you're on the board of directors of. For our listeners who may not be familiar with ATTP, can you tell us a little bit about the organization, its mission, and its goals? Yeah, so ATTP started 10 years ago now. Um, we are in our 10th year, and it was really around trying to pull together the disparate alliances that from around the world um, to, to work towards a common framework for technology transfer, knowledge exchange, knowledge transfer, commercialization. You know, I think we're also globally you have this set of activities which are all based around the same skill set and competency with a similar mission and agenda, but slightly different ways about going about to getting to that end result. Nature to feel about how we can get an international alignment and network um, that, that shows that we are a community that is united and head on that track towards being you know, a profession rather than just being sort of practitioners based in different offices in universities. And you know, one of the things around professionalisation is really about having dedicated and acknowledged skills framework and competency, as well as having credentialing to make sure that there is a, a professional standard that can be achieved. So, you know, as I mentioned, globally there is uh, some sort of differences, but overall the skills competency is the same. And it's not just limited to sort of licensing and traditional and data formation and traditional tech transfer. 
profession's expanding and even in the short time, ten, the last 10 years, the short time that ATP has been uh, established for, we've seen massive change across the profession. You know, it's, again, it's not about staff licensing anymore, staff and licensing. You know, we're seeing skills competencies being applied across all areas of research, enterprise, innovation, including uh, industry partnerships and engagement, you know, student accelerator and startup programs, incubator and accelerator programs, um, place-based innovation, precincts, innovation district. Uh, and you know, I've dabbled across all of these issues. And now, now my next level is around design innovation, moving to the sort of product development of technologies. Uh, you know, I keep asking myself, what's the next generation of tech transfer going to look like? Because there's always something going to be something new going on. Uh, I remember seeing a presentation maybe 10 years ago with Christian Brancher, um, as she gave a talk, she came to Australia for a KCA masterclass, and she talked about technology transfer one, technology transfer two, and technology transfer three. But I think now we must be up near technology transfer 10 in terms of all the different activities that are going across the sector now. Um, but they all come back to that core skill competency, which is reflected by ATCP. So ATCP is becoming a broader church. Uh, and in just recently, we've um, opened up the track to the credentialing for, for leadership in tech transfer rather than just being transactional. So we're evolving um, quite rapidly. So I'd be curious to know um, how you think maybe um, tech transfer will change in view of COVID, given everything that's going on. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. I think we're going to see much more. We are already seeing, you know, talking, I was talking to an international colleague this morning, and we're, you know, everyone's reporting a massive upsurge in activity for things like click-through licensing and rapid licensing, which is good for where IP is packaged up and can be downloaded. So things like reports that are copyrighted, software, SDK, and other things that you can access and research tools which you can mail out. Uh, I think because we do the contact sport, we're going to see a bit of a delay, a delayed effect on the bigger transactions. Uh, most of those really are relationship dependent. And I don't think people are going to invest in big, say, multi-million dollar transactions with people that haven't met before. I think that so there will be a ripple through effect on that aspect of technology transfer. Uh, do you want to continue talking to me about more, describing more about ATCP and what ATCP does? Absolutely, yeah. And especially, I think, as part of ATTP, there's this um, registered technology transfer professional, also known as our TTP designation, that I think might be helpful for you to explain a little bit about. Yeah, so, you know, I think I forgot the history. And the next step is the mission of ATTP, and it's really to promote and maintain global standards in technology tech transfer, knowledge transfer and technology transfer. And the, one of the we do it through two main mechanisms. One is um, after 10 years, nine years, late last we finally came up with a universally accepted definition of the profession, um, which I think is, is really important. And we also do this through the registered technology transfer designation, uh, which is international professional standard knowledge transfer and commercialization practitioners working in universities, industry, government labs. Uh, I was thinking about talking a little bit more in a minute. Uh, but the, the goals are really about maintaining that definition of the profession, which I should add is, you know, tech transfer is a collaborative creative endeavor that translates knowledge and research into impacts in society and the economy. I know in your opening splash you have a slightly different definition, but this is the um, universally accepted ATTP definition that has been agreed to by all member like the alliance members. And we also maintain the RTCP standards and designation and we support national actions in knowledge exchange um, to raise the, the calibre of our members. And, and also we encourage training service providers for the programs that comply with our with the RTCP standards. Um, so we also have a review piece around training. Um, I think it's a good time now to talk a bit more about the RTCP designation. Um, yeah, at the moment, we have over 600 RTCPs worldwide, and um, it's really growing quite quickly. 
even in the since I've been involved in ACP it's over two years now, you know, we've nearly doubled the number. Um, so we're sharply on the upward trajectory and it is becoming um, an important part of the profession. Now, I understand from the research I was doing on the RTTP designation that in order to um, achieve that designation, you have to demonstrate that you have certain core competencies um, to work effectively in the profession and that you have an established track record. And I thought that was really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about what these core competencies are and how a person demonstrates an established track record? Because that's that's fascinating to me. Yeah, so the RTDP credential is a little bit different to say other credentials like CLP. Is that we're capturing a broader church of professionals. It's not just about licensing like CLP. So there is a skills and competency framework that outlines the areas. It's quite broad. Um, that's available on the ATTP website, which is ATTP.info. So I won't go through them all now. We'll be here all day. <laughs> check out that, that page. Um, so, and the track record is your professional track record that you could establish through working in, in, a, in a TT um, type functional role. And to, to qualify for RTTP, um, you need to demonstrate that you've achieved the 60 continuing education points that have been credentialed by through ATTP credential training. Um, so, and, and a list of those credential training um, courses currently on the ATTP website, but also your individual alliance member um, association, such as uh, yeah, Awesome or ASTP, Practice or KCA. There's 14 organisations who are being, who are now formed. Um, uh, alliance members of ATTP, they've all got credential training. So 60 C points, which equates to about 60 hours, and that could be half training, half attend, uh, attended um, national meetings and conferences. Um, and then you could also have a hybrid, if you've done training that isn't ATTP accredited, you could, um, you could put that, you could submit that training as well. Uh, how many hours, but it's a bit more rigorous. You need to then demonstrate the relevance of that training to the profession. So you need to show the, the alignment between the tech transfer profession and, and the sort of learning outcomes of those courses. And you also need to provide list your professional qualifications and rel- you know, any other relevant courses and things that will help you demonstrate your RTCB core competency, uh, list of deals, you know, that sort of track record piece. And then you also need to have um, your sort of statement of achievement, which is a thousand word case study oh, wow. um, or achievement overview that demonstrating summarizing transaction, a leadership initiative, or another um, activity in the tech transfer space where you have directly impacted and resulted in that outcome occurring. Um, and you have to tie those that tie those uh, learning from that case study back into the Building Properties Framework. Wow, that's really impressive. Yeah, so it's it's really about getting that um, that that balance right. Where we're looking to make sure people have undergone professional development. I've uh, worked in the office for a period of time and had a period of tenure, and have actually had a leadership role or not a leadership role, but a role in driving um, transactions. And one of the case studies that they're they're proud to hang their name against um, to to be an exemplar for their involvement in the profession. So, and, that, and it's all peer-reviewed by other RTTP accredited uh, peers um, to maintain that, that, level, that level of standard. Wow, that's, as I mentioned, that's, that's really impressive. Now, if, let's say I wanted to become an RTTP candidate, could I apply any time during the year? Are there, there are any limitations on when you can apply? Is it like a college class where, you know, you only allow people to apply at certain times a year? How does that work? Yeah, so normally we have a number of intakes per year. Um, so there, there's, and we have, you know, they're advertised with deadline for submission and they're up on our agency website and it should be also relayed through your member association. The last one was last week, 16th of July, the week full up. And it was one of our best states. We had over 40 applications. Oh, wow. Um, I should also add that there are two groups, 
to um, RTTP accreditation. There's the, the full RTTP credential. There's also another credential for early career tech transfer professionals called Kenda's RTTP, which has a lot lower bar. Um, you're asking that Kenda's RTTP um, after your name as a, as a post-nominal, which you know, signals to people that you're um, making a commitment towards profession to become you know, an RTCP. So looking at you know, multiple pathways to build up the skills, to build a pipeline of candidates working towards RTCP status. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I hadn't seen that about for kind of people early on in their career. I think that's great to give them something to um, aspire to. So given all that, um, how long does it generally take somebody to achieve um, one of the two statuses? Yeah, so normally the skills, you know, transactions, and professional development are required. I collected at least a three-year period. Um, during that point, we're seeing candidates who can complete a very strong application. Um, in terms of after an application has been submitted, usually takes six weeks to two months. Um, most of our applications are successful, but some need further information and pre-submission because the application after the submission that submitted wasn't detailed enough for our peer review to need towards the credential. Um, also, I should note that we are aware that the experience in applying for RTTP is not optimal. Um, so we're actively looking at how we can make the candidate uh, user experience as easy and pleasant as possible for those applying for RTTP. So, um, remember, our mission is to promote the profession through the credential I want to make this seamless as we can for applicants, so as many RTTPs out in the wild as we can get. Um, the candidate RTTP status, um, candidates can apply for that status generally after six months, and it requires them to, um, to spit a, a much more simple application um, with a lot of support from the manager of their office or their supervisor and a learning pathway of how they can achieve RTTP status. That's awesome. Um- how about cost for doing this? Is it expensive? Um, I mean, obviously, you guys are doing a lot, um, you and the other members of the board, in terms of um, all this work to to develop this credentialing program. Um, so, where do you get fees from? Are are they expensive? What what does it generally cost to be to get this particular credentialing? Yeah, so um, there is an initial fee of. Um, US three hundred dollars, just payable upon submission of your application. Um, if you need to resubmit, there's no further fee. The candidate RTTP status um, for those new to the profession is fifty dollars US. Um, at the moment, we have no yearly dues, uh, and, and initially the the RTTP credential had no expiry. Although this is being reviewed now, we want to start to explore higher tiers for more distinguished professionals. Uh, and this will form the basis of some discussion at our upcoming sort of annual meeting of the HSP Council. Um, we want to recognise that some people do the profession for a long time and give a lot of their time volunteering to advance the profession. And we think it's probably appropriate that we acknowledge them in some kind of obviously, maybe that sort of fellow um, technology trends, fellow RTTP or some other designation. So we're working towards that. Um, and that, to be eligible for that, we want to have some kind of um, renewal process. But it won't be mandatory for those that already have RTCP, um, but we, it'd be desirable in the future. I think that would be great. You know, I, I'm actively involved in Autumn. I'm sure you may be as well. And I, I'm always amazed at the level of volunteerism in the organization. And it sounds like, obviously, you have a lot as well. And I think having that kind of tiered um, or higher tiered st- status uh, for distinguished individuals would, would be probably something that's very warranted because I am continually amazed at the, at the commitment of uh, various members of Autumn to to try and train and improve um, technology transfer going forward. So I, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think we volunteer. I want to touch on volunteering. I think it's very important. It is, it's yeah. Any sort of profession... You, you get back out what you put in. And if you're a, a passenger on your career journey, um, you'll get to the end, but it'll be a very linear ride. Yeah. Where if you can, if you, you know, taking on some of my singularity university type thinking, the more you put in, you know, if you actively act to advance the profession you're in, 
then you can have an exponential career and you can end in a, a place that's always a magnitude higher than the place you would anticipate if you fulfill a linear, linear career trajectory. And that's a really good point. I, I've inter- interviewed Mark Sidham, Laura Savitsky, and all these people, Andy Moss, all these people have had leadership roles and spent a lot of time, like yourself, volunteering for these organizations. And when you talk with them and hear about their tech transfer journey, it is so much more than a linear career. And Mark Sidham talks about how he's met people in tech transfer offices all around the world, and it's really been about the people. So your t- point is, I think, a really good one about volunteering and just the connections and the people you meet and the experiences you have by doing that. It'll be such a more worthwhile career if, if you go that route than, you know, not volunteering. I agree. And we're always looking for more people to volunteer and getting involved with HACC. So if you are interested, listeners, if you are interested, please um, reach out to some of the HACC representatives that are within your member associations because I'm sure we can find something to plug you into to get you involved. Um, and that will help accelerate your career independently as well um, and raise your profile and profession. Absolutely. So what would you say the benefit of actually having this RTTP designation is? Uh, I think there are a number of different benefits. Although I think number one is about perception. Um, when you're meeting with another party and they have the RTTP credential, you know they have a level of confidence and experience uh, and should, in principle, know what they're doing in terms of their, the transaction or the activity you're engaging with them on. Uh, on the flip side, you also create authority for you when you're engaging on a transaction and so send that message to the other party that, that you're, experience, you're an experienced professional. You've been credentialed to the level of peer review that says that you're an expert at what you're doing. Um, and one of my colleagues, who was actually a candidate at RPCP, told me that it's a bit like a, a roadmap on who to respect in the profession. She said that when she's at different conferences and events or she's, a, she's engaging with the, with the community, when RTTP talks, she, she listens because she's going to learn something uh, and there's, there's a lesson there. So also I think we're seeing more and more in the recruitment space that having RTTP um, appearing in a selection criteria role, normally as a desired credential, because I think the, the hiring manager, it signals that you have a competent person applying. And I know that certainly from some of the other um, peers in the tech transfer community, they certainly will um, shortlist candidates with RTCP over those that don't if it comes down to sort of a razor edge on a candidate, you know, split decision. So there's lots of different things, but also I think what's really important is that for people entering the profession, because tech transfer is a very difficult job to have a transient profession, sometimes with people coming and going, I think it, it signals to those people entering the profession that there is a career pathway here for you that you can um, you can work towards a profession. It's not something that you do in between um, different parts. It's a stopgap in your career, which I think maybe perception that existed in the past. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I I see the benefit now. And I'm more and more people that I'm interviewing, I, I do ask about the RTTP credentialing and, and whether or not they think it makes a difference. And it's the number of people who are answering and the positive is is definitely increasing the, the more people I talk with. Um, and I think what was interesting to me too was I was looking at the ATTP website and there's a list of every individual who's received the RTTP designation and I was really impressed about how diverse the list was in terms of people all around the world whether it was US India Australia you know Europe um, Japan Singapore it was it was very very impressive to me yeah we're, we're a global profession um, and we have the life members and agencies from around, around the world. As I mentioned earlier, we all, earlier, we have different perspectives and laws that underpin our individual tech transfer activity. Um, and there's no right, one way to go about doing things. But the common element is that intersection of research enterprise and business industry entrepreneurship, the purpose of knowledge exchange, knowledge dissemination, and the skills and companies that underpin that yeah, are all described by that ATCP um, framework. And, and that's, that's common and universal. Um, so we are really, the, the credential 
you have the RTCP credential in the US and you come to Australia, um, your Australian peers have, have been reviewed and examined and accredited at the same standard. And that goes for anywhere in the globe. So it's, it's unique in that, in that aspect. You know, we have a global community and I think that's one of the things that we've seen in this current COVID environment is that, you know, we're, we're locked into our, you know, our offices and working from home environment. It doesn't matter if you're, um, if you're based in the US. You know, I had, as I mentioned earlier, I was on a call and Mark Sudan indicated that he's quite happy now to essentially employ people from other parts of the globe or working, um, the University of New Hampshire. But in doing that, it doesn't really matter because everyone's connected remotely now, even if they're in the same city. So I think the globalization of the profession um, ties in nicely to the sort of the decentralization of the modern workplace and the future of work. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think as we come to a conclusion of our podcast here, Tim, I I think I'd like to have you reflect a little bit on your amazing career in tech transfer. Uh, Can you tell us what you've learned along the way, along this incredible journey of yours, and and really what's meant the most to you? Yes, certainly. I think it's really about taking the time to get the basics down well and understanding how things happen. Um, You've got to own the training wheels when you're starting out in the profession to get yourself involved in negotiating and industry as many transactions and agreements as possible. Uh, that that will really hone the learn your craft that way. Now, I always suggest to people that you can get um, a gig or a job in a very, very busy office. So in Australia, that's the GO8 um, University Tech Transfer Office. It might be, you know, a top 50 school in the in the US. Um, you will, just with the pure volume of transactions, after a couple of years, you'll be you'll have the, tr- the craft down down pat. But then on the flip side of that, you're only the training wheel, you're only as good as the people that you know. And you know, we keep coming back to tech transfer as a contact sport. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as I mentioned, it's a tough job. Officers have a lot of turnovers, which create lots and lots of opportunities for those. But your ability to make and maintain relationships is going to make or break your career. So you need to invest in building your network, which is kind of difficult and changing in the current way we're working due to COVID-19. But on one final point, you know, I think it's about being proactive. You know, opportunities and deals are made. You know, there's the days of preparing a, a one-page non-confidential marketing brief, putting it online via a website, iBridge, or whacking on Impart on these newer platforms, and then people coming looking for you and finding deals. I think that's not enough. But I'm sure that, that does work to an extent. But the best deals, you know, the best deals I've done come from bundling IT, um, bringing multiple parties together um, to and creating initiatives um, that create the most value for most people. You know, it needs to demonstrate a lot of hustle um, to be successful to get the big, big um, influential initiatives, which lead to the, the impacts that are brought up um, and impact society and the economy and create jobs and always great economic development outcomes, which I think is really what tech transfer is for. You know, um, all our all our metrics for innovation are nice ways to really describe um, economic development. We might well anyway. That's maybe where I've come to in my tech transfer group. Wow, that's great. Well, Tim, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Yeah, so I'm pretty easy to find. Um, if you um, come on to LinkedIn, you can find me at Tim P. Boyle um, or Tim Boyle. And if you um, get me on Twitter as well, which also has the at handle Tim P. Boyle, or you can drop me an email if you like at timothyb at anso.gov.au. Um, and you can, if you Google Tim Boyle on Anso, you'll, you'll find my um, page on or a page with my details and contact online. Um, it's in a number of different places on the web. Um, quite easy to find and I'm easy to contact and I like to get back to everyone in a timely manner. So please send any inquiries my way about you know, anything we've discussed with this um, membership, 
um, opportunities, ANSTO, Future Partnerships, ANSTO, ATCP, um, RCCP credentialing. Uh, if this exists and your association is not an alliance member, we'd like to become one, reach out to me for that as well. Um, happy to discuss any of the great things and more. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again, Tim. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thanks, Lisa. It's been a real, real pleasure and privilege. And um, I look forward to future episodes of your podcast as well. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.